Listen to The Astonishing Junk Drawer exclusively at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends. I have never run faster in my life. Well, my name's Max Kelso. I'm an Eagle Scout. I was in Troop 311, so. Was your gut instinct immediately that this was something that was not human? Suddenly, even though I'm all bundled up warm, I go cold, shiver. All of a sudden, there was this column-shaped, very discreet mist. There was a mist in your midst. Talk about cryptids and uh, other dimensions. That is a very cute cat. It's not real. It's not happening. I was binging Naked and Afraid last night, so. Astonishing Legends would like to thank Squarespace, Masterclass, The Farmer's Dog, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible. As we've discussed many times in Astonishing Legends, there are some locations around the world that you might think twice about visiting when you hear their names. The New Jersey Pine Barrens, the Bennington Triangle, the Torture Chamber in South Dakota, Goblin's Gate in Washington, and of course, Devil's Den in Arkansas, where our friend Terry Lovelace had a life-altering experience. What's in a name anyway? Sure, some spooky things have happened at many of these places. Others are named for rock formations, or their appearance from afar, like Goblin's Gate. But there are a few where the name definitely carries more weight. Because somewhere, back in time, something happened there. And before there was the printing press, TV, or the internet, if humanity wanted to make sure people knew a place should be avoided, they gave it a name. Like the Navajo gave Skinwalker Ridge long before the Sherman family purchased ranch land containing a portion of it. This brings us to tonight's topic, Shades of Death Road in Warren County, New Jersey. There's a lot of speculation on how it came to be named that, and we wanted to know more about it, especially since it's bordered by Ghost Lake where people have reportedly seen misty apparitions that floated across the water toward them until they fled. Why are so many places with foreboding names so close together in this quiet little pocket of northwestern New Jersey? Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. It was haunted, but real hauntings have nothing to do with ghosts, finally. They have to do with the menace of memory. Anne Rice, the Queen of the Damned. Join us tonight as we take a trip down Shades of Death Road. That we are. We hope everyone had a wonderful 4th of July holiday. It was nice for us to uh, take a little break there. Summertime has been unbelievably hot this year, globally, Mm. so uh, we hope you guys are all staying cool out there. But the fall is approaching, and so is our favorite time of year, the spooky season. Yes, delicious pumpkin spice spoopiness. (laughs) And it seemed like a good time to ram back into that a little bit tonight. Yeah, we picked out something a little bit spooky. It's been a minute since we've done Mm. something like that, so we're, we're looking forward to talking about that tonight. Yeah, but uh, Mantis Men was that creeped me out a bit. Yes, it was creepy, but it, it wasn't it wasn't <laughs> ghosty. That's you know? true. No, 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 like, that's yeah. true. But also in the same region, these things are uh, 
it's one of those areas, man. I'm telling you. Yeah, that's true, folks. And here's something we didn't mention in the cold open. The Mantis Men or the Mantis Man sightings. Mm -hmm. And this stuff, it's a real short drive between these two locations. (laughs) So uh, there's a lot going on there in Warren County. We're excited to talk about that tonight. Now, just quickly, we wanted to thank everyone for staying with us all of these years. We're, We're closing in on nine years now. We do not take our listeners for granted. And we're so grateful that you keep coming back. If you enjoy the show, please tell your friends and family about us. We haven't said this in a long time. I want to put it back out there. Let people know. We're still looking for new folks to pull into the fold, and we know there's a lot of people out there who would enjoy it if they just gave us a shot. Absolutely. And yes, folks, marketing budgets for podcasting are almost completely useless. And there's, They don't really do anything. The only thing that really works <laughs> is word of mouth. So if you know people that you think might like Astonishing Legends, please tell them about us. It's so much easier now than it used to be because people at least know what a podcast is. Most people do. It's come a long way from when we started. <laughs> no, we have backgrounds in advertising and marketing. And it's just one of those things where still, even after all these years, even since like from 1995, when podcasts were just getting going, the only thing that really helps spread podcast growth is people telling other people they like which podcast they should listen to. It's recommendations and it's being recommendable and Oddly, yeah, it just you taking out an ad just doesn't work. So again, please and thank you for spreading the word. Yeah, not just for us, folks. Do right. it for all the shows you like. It's the best way to help out the shows that you listen to. And it's a lot easier now, like we were saying a minute ago. It mm-hmm. used to be when we first started out, we asked you to do this. You'd We'd also have to like do a little speech. We even contemplated doing a little class about <laughs> explaining to friends how yeah. to download a podcast app and how to subscribe and all right. that. You don't have to do that anymore. Everyone now pretty much knows what one is, and you can find us anywhere, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, our own website, everywhere in between. If you just Google us or ask your smart speaker about us or whatever, we'll generally come up. So it's a piece of cake to recommend us now. And if you can't find anyone to tell about the show, then just leave us a review somewhere if you have a few minutes. And I still do tell older relatives and older folks I meet who ask about it that it's a radio show on the computer, and, and that they seem to understand. I understood that reference. I did too. Essentially, well, that's <laughs> kind of what it is. And if you can, if they can get on there, I can show them how to find it. And they're they're usually yeah. pleased, so that's nice. All right. Well, enough of all that. Let's head on down to Shades of Death Road. So here's the funny thing about this. We mm. were working on a topic for a show when we were working on Mantis Men. We stumbled across a bunch of additional things that were going on pretty much in the same area, right? Yeah. We we weren't really sure how to break that into episodes. I mean, I first heard this episode on Somewhere in the Skies by Ryan Sprague, and I just knew, like, this was a pretty cool episode. Rarely do you get these many fascinating stories not only in the same region, but uh, told by the same guy for the most part. And at the time, I didn't know how deeply we'd dig into it, but as in the spirit of this show, it's something I wanted to talk to you about because it's so weird and creepy. Yeah, and just for our listeners who want to hear Ryan's version of this stuff on Somewhere in the Skies, which is an excellent podcast, this was episode 162 of his show. It came out in May of 2020 that he had Patrick McFadden on, Mm -hmm. and then he graciously shared contact info with Patrick with us, and we were going to have him on tonight, but he had a scheduling conflict at his work and was unable to make it, so we've invited him on to a pending junk drawer to talk about some of his personal experiences in this area in question tonight, which we'll also be covering. But the first thing to understand is that this is real close by the Mantis Men sightings, for those of you that heard those episodes just uh, two episodes ago, I think. 
And mm-hmm. this whole area is in northwestern New Jersey, a rural and beautiful part of New Jersey in Warren County. And what's it also close by where you previously stayed a few times? Yes, it's, it is not very far from, I've mentioned it on the show before, but my wife and I, when we lived in New York City mm-hmm. for about seven years, we had a house, a small little vacation Cape Cod house on the Delaware River in Bucks County, far northern Bucks County, which is north of uh, Doylestown and New Hope, Doylestown, mm-hmm. where Pink is from, and James Missioner. <laughs> That's right. Other yeah. towns there. And then across from us in uh, New Jersey was Frenchtown and Milford. All of that is a short drive, about 35, 40 minutes yeah. from where most of this stuff is taking place, including the Mantis Men, but also our subject tonight, Shades of Death Road right. and Ghost Lake, mm-hmm. which is Shades of Death Road adjacent. So uh, <laughs> well, if, you, if you're looking for yeah. a home in the area, which, by the way, I found... While we were doing research, there's lots of lovely houses on Shades of Death Road. There are. And I was thinking yeah. about, like, there was some, it was, I was looking at houses where half a million dollars, you know, yeah. it, and I was just thinking, wow, it's like, where do you live? Well, I've got this beautiful place. Why don't you come by and check it out? Where are you? Um, 408 Shades of Death Road. It's like, you know what? I'm busy. <laughs> and that is exactly why I would buy a property on that road to keep people away. Yeah. I don't want any companies, but... <laughs> Like, no, I know. Yeah, you're you right. stay. No, but here's the thing: everybody uh, that we've come across that have been recorded talking about this, I'll tell you, it's got a vibe, man. It seems dark in the middle of the day, bright sunlight. It just seems preternaturally shady. There's a couple of bends in it. I mean, I, I guess it's owing to unexpected curves when you, uh, not really hairpin yes. turns, but. Not hairpin. They're listed online and all the, a lot of entries, they say they're hairpins, but as a former track enthusiast, they're not really hairpins. They're more <laughs> no, like no, uh, no. But, right angles. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> which is you know, like, hey, if you're speeding and, you and still get, get, get in trouble, but more so yeah. I expect you come around that bend and there's the grinning man wearing a circus suit of some kind, yeah. you know, like that's yeah. David Weatherly territory right there. You're going to come around yeah, that bend and see is. something you didn't want to. So just to give a little bit of perspective on the geography of this, if you're up in the northwestern corner of New Jersey, this is Warren County. The seat of Warren County is the city of Belvedere. Something I would say, and I actually talked to Patrick about this when we were trying to work out scheduling to have him come on, as he is from this area. And uh, having lived adjacent to it myself, or not lived, but traveling adjacent to it and, and being near it all summer and mostly in the summers, I found it to be a very beautiful, beautiful area. And one of the things I will say about New Jersey, and I felt like I've said it on the show before, is it is a much maligned state (laughs) because (laughs) of Jersey City's appearance from New York. And there are some areas that aren't great, but every state has those. I am telling you, when you get out to the west, and especially the northwest and the southwest of New Jersey, it is just gorgeous. It is a beautiful, beautiful countryside. It's hilly. There's farms. It's the garden state. And there's a reason it's named that. It's very green. And I will, yes, I having been there a handful of times, you know, people think of maybe blame Joe Piscopo back on SNL days. (laughs) I work at a chemical factory. Yeah. People (laughs) associate a lot of heavy industry with New Jersey. And there's some there certainly, but that's what you see from the river on all that. But if you go, yeah, north, you go to the west, 
the South, it's uh, there's some lovely uh, aspects to it that aren't often mentioned. But there's a lot of stuff, and in this western part where a lot of farms are, in this particular area that we're talking about tonight, the northwestern part too, mm-hmm. which, is, like I said, is just across the Delaware River from Bucks County, Pennsylvania. So for those of you who aren't geography hounds, when you when you think about the state of Pennsylvania, you know it has the perfectly straight northern border and the perfectly straight southern border, but the eastern border is sort of S-shaped, and New Jersey is tucked into that. What makes up that S is the Delaware River. Mm-hmm. And the Delaware River is beautiful. It's amazing. It's uh, relatively calm. It has been prone to flooding in the past. In fact, when my wife and I had a place there, there it had flooded a couple times, but uh, the reservoir management got better, and that seems to have abated for a long time now. It's a gorgeous area there as well, but the thing that I will say about it is that there is a spookiness factor. Yeah. There is a very spooky component to it. And a large part of the area in Warren County that we're talking about tonight was created by one of the last glaciers. I think it was called the Wisconsin Glacier. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a lot of the geographical features are defined by what this glacier did to the landscape when it was retreating. So that wound up depositing lots of rich soil and and defining the geography in the area. The thing about Warren County and this part of New Jersey and actually the whole northeastern part of the United States there was it was already inhabited before the European settlers arrived. Yes. And, uh, the first ones arriving around 1750. But it was inhabited by the Lenny Lenape people. And they had been there, by most accounts, what I've looked at in, in our research was that they had been there at least 6,000 years. Yeah. And they're part of the Algonquin tribes. And here's the fascinating thing about that. The Algonquin themselves called them the grandfathers, the grandparents. Yeah. So they were seen by those tribes as a pre-existing group of Native Americans or Indians, as some still call themselves today. Yeah, seminal generations. And, you know, we first heard about them, I think, and did a little deeper dive. Certainly we'd heard of the name. They are quite prominent in the area, but I think Roanoke is when yes. they really started coming up because they are very prominent in that story as well. And, you know, pointing to how old that is, they've certainly been dealing with uh, Europeans coming in for quite a while, but also... As Scott's going to explain here in a little bit, a lot of turmoil, strife, settlement, and just trying to live in this whole region. Yeah. And I think people tend not to consider the different appreciations and tribes and their attitudes and temperaments. Pre-Columbian, pre-Columbus, yes. them coming over. And right. that there was many years of strife and struggle and joy and happiness and and uh, terror you know that was all happening for thousands of years in this area and i think it, it left a little uh imprint on the ground hey if we're saying that folks after the settlers came post columbus are leaving imprints then you can't say the people that were here five times as long before them or six but well even more they weren't also leaving impressions sure. on the land. If you believe in the energy of our souls and the activities we take and uh, when we're warring and when we're at peace and good things happening or places uh, that everyone travels to or you're near mm-hmm. water sources, all kinds of things we've talked about on the show before, which has no root in science, but still <laughs> we've had a lot of experience. Hey, you just have <laughs> to experience it stuff. for yourself. That's all I'll say. But also <laughs> yeah. uh, talking about the region too, because this story here really opened my eyes to and make connections with, and that's what I try to do with everything we cover, is that there's a lot of stories coming out of Bucks County as well. We're talking about Warren County in northern 
western, more central here, part of New Jersey, but not too far over. Scott was saying, Bucks County, there is a lot, there are a lot, lots of reports of glowing red eyes in the tree line in the woods, stones and pebbles being thrown at people who go to visit there at night. Yeah, there's a Bigfoot situation in Bucks County. There's a, there's a couple of sightings there. Yeah. yeah, people being chased out of there. And I'm talking about like the cartoon eyes <laughs> in the darkness. Yes. Staring back at you. And people say like, yeah, we felt it was time to go. And as they're retreating, they feel little tiny pebbles being pelted with those as they're leaving. And there's yeah. something around. Kelton yeah. is another area too, I think, uh, that there's just something deeply mysterious and spooky about the whole area. But this stretch is a hot spot. It is a hot spot. And again, one of my favorite parts of the country, at least Bucks County, for sure. I would go back in a minute. I will say that the place that my wife and I had, the town felt haunted <laughs> and kind of spooky. Mm-hmm. And the whole area was like that. But there, to, to a certain extent, nature was part of it right. because we were in the Delaware River Valley. And it was clear the part, there were cliffs behind us. And it was clear that all Mother Nature would have to do is sneeze and our house and <laughs> everyone around us for yeah. 50 miles in both directions would just be back in the river. It's coming, so, all coming down, yeah. And things would grow so fast. You could just tell. You had to keep everything at bay yeah. to keep it from turning into a jungly, yeah. overgrown place that our house would look abandoned inside <laughs> of two weeks if you didn't trim and keep track we of We talked about that. You know, so. That's why evidence of yeah. ancient civilizations uh, are so difficult to find and traces of, uh, like I said, there could have been a, yeah. a bad civilization uh, half a million years Especially ago. Especially in fertile areas. Right. The earth swallows up everything yeah. eventually. Across that river to the east, though, is also the French town cemetery, right? Which is also- Yes, very close. That was about five minutes from where I was. I was in Upper Black Eddy. Mm-hmm. If anyone wants to look that up, it's a very tiny little town. Right. Yeah, the French Town Cemetery has got a lot of historical figures in it. It's an amazing place. So all of that stuff is about an hour and 10 minutes from Manhattan, which is why my wife and I liked it. We would go that mm-hmm. way on the weekends and in the summer when uh, when we could get away from uh, work and stuff for a minute. But circling back to Warren County and where this stuff is taking place and the Lenny Lenape people, uh, by no means an expert of any kind on this. This is literally cursory research, a couple of weeks <laughs> mm-hmm. of digging down, reading a lot of fascinating stuff about the Lenny Lenape people. One of the things that I read, and anyone who's a, a member of the tribe or an expert historian is welcome to reach out to us with corrections if I say anything that's wrong here. But one of the things that we had read was that they're a relatively peaceful tribe, but they did come to blows with other tribes yeah. occasionally, uh, including the Iroquois. And there were struggles there. And there was a situation that I read about historically where the Lenny Lenape people had not been armed, but the Iroquois had. Right. And so whenever they got into a, a tussle, as they would say, or mm-hmm. there would be a, a battle, it would not go well for the Lenny Lenape people. The other thing that's super fascinating about them is that they, I think it was matrilinear or um, matriarchal type society yeah. where the women had a great deal of power. The men and women were seen as equals. Women could hold land. They could do all the same stuff the men did. But the men did go out and hunt, and they built structures, and they did that sort of thing, and they protected the community. But the women were also landowners, and the the matriarchal line was considered, or is considered, I should say, the most important line genetically and in terms of the tribe. So when children are born, 
they're connected to the mother. And even if there's an uncle, if the mother has a brother, that person is considered closer to the child than the actual father. Right. Real division of labor in a lot of instances here. It's fascinating. And, but they also went out of their way that I had read to make sure that when they were marrying, they were coming from other clans. This was a way to avoid any kind of inbreeding as well. So that the man would come from another clan and that would help to preserve the tribe overall Mm -hmm. in terms of the health of everybody. Just fascinating stuff. But over time, there were a lot of conflicts, as we said, and there were conflicts with other tribes, but there were also conflicts, of course, with settlers, which are infamous. And one of the things that we had heard about Shades of Death Road was that there had been a great battle there between the Iroquois Mm -hmm. and the Lenny Lenape people. And so, of course, we started researching that, we're looking into it, and here's what happens when you look up Lenny Lenape people and battles or massacres. So many links and horrible (laughs) things come back, you could never find. And there had to have been so many conflicts that weren't recorded oh, anywhere yeah, of course. that yeah. just happened. Right. And if you don't have the oral history, which I'm sure they do tribally and internally, you would never know about it. You can't even imagine how many things happened. But one of the stories is that Ghost Lake, which we mentioned, that is neighboring Shades of Death Road, was a place where the Lenny Lenape, after a massacre, their bodies were mm-hmm. taken and dumped into the lake. So that's something to remember as we're going through all these stories here, because there are folks that insist that they see apparitions at the lake. Right. But it's a very serene place. You get the sense that it's serene, but it can also be scary at night. But it's one of those things where people are coming in and and maybe they're expecting to see things. Mm -hmm. But we were unable to find any evidence of a specific conflict that took place there between the Iroquois and the Lenny Lenape. But we can tell you that over time, they were pushed out of the state entirely. They were attacked at first from the west by the Iroquois, I believe, and pushed across the Delaware River from Pennsylvania into New Jersey. And then they were pushed back by the settlers and then sent to reservation land and all the horrible history that pretty much everybody knows. And so now they're scattered uh, in different parts of the country. I think there's a strong concentration of remaining Lenny Lenape people in Oklahoma and other various states where they were moved to over the years. So there's definitely a lot of history there associated with that. But the other thing that we're very sensitive to on this show, because we talked about it in the past and we had uh, some cultural experts get in touch with us after we were talking, it might even have been about the Sally House, but I can't remember now, had reached out to us and said, you know, you have to be careful when you're discussing ghosts and Mm -hmm. history of the United States and everything and laying everything at the foot of the Indian curse. Well, (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Sean, I think, uh, you know, who's a a cultural studies... uh, there in Atchison. And look, my deal is that there's ghosts everywhere. (laughs) I tend to believe that it doesn't matter who started or whatever, but just the fact that there's been people there and a lot of rough living, as we just mentioned, you know, like I said, uh, joyous times, terrible times, strife, hunger, starvation, death, war, like that doesn't matter who is there doing that. I believe that it's all around there. And look, every cemetery and burial ground has <laughs> been reported yeah. to contain specters from beyond the That's veil. True. So I think it's important to keep in mind that any burial place where there's a concentration of of buried former people has been reported to contain spirits and specters from the other side. And it doesn't matter who they were, what their culture is. <laughs> so it because it's easy to say Native American burial ground, that's the reason why all this is happening. And on the flip side, it's easy to say, hey, that is uh, not a factor when any burial ground is a factor, in my opinion. 
if you believe right. in ghosts yeah. and all that. Well, here, what we'll see is that very specifically, people will have claimed to see very misty-like figures floating around, especially coming out of the water, but also uh, fully formed people, full body apparitions, as they would be called. And they're not always described as 17th century Native American dress, right? It's not that right. iconic. It's everything. This is a kitchen sink place, folks. So after the tribes have been present there for, as we know now, 6,000 years, one of the things that happened was in the 1750s or so, the Dutch came over, which are also the ones who settled uh, New mm -hmm. York City as New Amsterdam, I think. And it might have even been something else before it was New Amsterdam. They, I know that it was. It got renamed to New Amsterdam. But they came over. And they were attempting to mine copper mm -hmm. in the area, and they were pretty ruthless about pushing the Lenape people and all of the local tribes out, unless the tribes were coordinating and helping them remove other tribes. So, in yeah. fact, predating this, by almost 100 years, there was a particular Dutch leader who had uh, been horrific to mm -hmm. the Lenny Lenape people. If you look it up, it's a thing called Keefe's War. We'll have a link to it in the show notes. That's K-I-E-F-T apostrophe S. This took place from 1643 to 1645. It's also known as the Wappinger War. I want to read just a little excerpt of this from Wikipedia because it's a good summary of the overview. It was a conflict between the colonial province of New Netherland and the Wappinger and Lenape Indians in what is now New York and New Jersey. It is named for Director General of New Netherland, which was the name that preceded New Amsterdam, I believe, William Kieft, who had ordered an attack without the approval of his advisory council and against the wishes of the colonists. So this guy was essentially a rogue mm -hmm. person. Dutch colonists had attacked Lenape camps and massacred the inhabitants, which encouraged unification among the regional Algonquin tribes against the Dutch and precipitated waves of attacks on both sides. This was one of the earliest conflicts between settlers and Indians in the region. The Dutch West India Company was displeased with Kieft and recalled him, but he died in a shipwreck while returning to the Netherlands. So got a little karma there, mm. I guess. But uh, there's a lot of conflict going on. That's happening there. There's definitely been a lot of battles. There's been battles between all kinds of people. That's something to think about when you're looking at uh, the possible origins of paranormal stories in the area, whether it's Native Americans who are, are warring with each other, settlers are pushing out. Native Americans, everybody is is trying to uh, achieve a goal, mm -hmm. and they're doing it at the expense of human lives. And we feel like that always leaves a mark throughout time. Mm -hmm. So in Warren County, there is a road called Shades of Death Road. This road is 6.7 miles long, and as you might have gathered by now, it is pretty famous for being haunted. So the question was, well, why do we talk about this? There's actually another Shades of Death Road in Pennsylvania, believe right. it or not. But for whatever <laughs> mm -hmm. reason... That one I don't think has a whole lot of history with it. Nothing like this one, which has its own ghost lake. Right. And it's all adjacent to Jenny Jump State Park. I think it's a perfect storm of legendary elements, let's say. And I think it's also a good template and model for the birth of a lot of urban legends and uh, folklore yes. that have sprung up around it. It's got all the elements that you would need. And I think... As we look to the past, we try to find the source of these legends and the naming conventions. Uh, some of the locals may have been, uh, some things may have been borrowed from uh, indigenous cultures there. What you find out is that it's all a blend. It's all a melange of, uh, of just stories that people will fill in the blanks. But there's always a through line going back to the original truth and that, you know, these are real geographical locations, real 
tragedies happened upon them and people, like I said, unless they're all lying or they're just all mistaken and it's all swamp gas, are really reporting a lot of strange activity. But I think all those things combined makes this a very legendary area. Yeah, and I think the other thing to remember there, and it's, because everything you just said reminded me of something else, that it's easy to forget when you're looking at these big picture conflicts and all these people moving around and hundreds, if not thousands of years of people trying to survive and inhabit land and have offspring that can survive and all of that kind of stuff. It's something, it reminds me of Dyatlov Pass, where mm-hmm. I got really caught up in those kids in that story. It's important to remember that in these stories, these are people. These are all yeah. people. If you went out and you hung out with them, whether it was the Lenny Lenape people or other people from the region, or you went into the 1800s and you met folks, there's always there's going to be folks there that are going to remind you of your own family and friends. Sure. And they all are going through all kinds of hardships. And that's the thing to remember about the big picture here. So just to the north of Ghost Lake and Shades of Death Road, there is a park called Jenny Jump State Park, which has a ridge in it, I guess, or a mountain mm-hmm. called Jenny Jump Mountain. Right. So when it comes to the origin of the Jenny Jump legend, which we're about to explain to you, again, connected to this area in Shades of Death Road, we had a hard time tracking down where exactly it came from. But eventually we were able to determine, thanks to some cursory research, that the source of it was a book written by a Swedish missionary named Sven or Sven Rosine. Mm-hmm. And this book is called The Dansbury Diaries, Moravian Travel Diaries of Reverend Sven Rosine and others from 1748 to 1755. There's a hardcover edition of it. It came out in January of 1994, which, you know, we would have loved to acquire this or try to acquire if there's a Kindle edition of it, but it's not. And here's the thing. The original version was probably written in Swedish. And there are versions out there, but there's only one version written in English, this translation. And this one, the hardcover, is currently available on Amazon for $490. Ouch. Well, yeah, readily available. So normally I would like to read that and read the actual source story on Jenny Jump, but we were unable to procure that copy (laughs) of the book. And the earlier copies are not in English. So we're going to resort to a small printout or a scan of a document that appears to explain the legend of Jenny Jump and its origin. And this is from alamuchinewjersey.org or nj.org. The legend of Jenny Jump. The area around Jenny Jump State Forest was inhabited by the Mincy or wolf tribe of the Lenni Lenape, which means the people. These American Indians were hunter-gatherers who lived in a woodland culture. Though relatively peaceful compared to their Iroquois neighbors to the north, the Lenape were known to have conflicts with the European settlers. The conflicts were usually the result of perceived wrongs by either the settlers or the Lenape. It is in the environment that the legend of the Jenny Jump grew, perhaps entirely myth, perhaps based on some fact. The legend was recorded by Swedish missionary Sven Rosin in 1747. According to the legend, Jenny, who was gathering berries, jumped off the ridge when her father saw Indians approaching and yelled for her to jump. Some versions say she died, others that she survived. However, it is also possible that the name Jenny Jump is the anglicized version of a Lenape name of the mountain and that the legend is sprung up to explain it afterwards. There's a couple of different possible explanations for that. Mm -hmm. I would say that the locals, including Patrick, have all heard that story. And Jenny Jump State Park has hiking trails. It's a beautiful park. And right on the website, it talks about that version of the legend. Right, right. 
And so that's next to, or, or, or very close to Shades of Death Road and Ghost Lake. So tonight we wanted to look at why is it called Shades of Death Road? There's a lot of stories about the area, some of which we'll share tonight, and there's a lot of theories about the origins, but the theories aren't all clear. There's one suggestion that there was a band of squatting highwaymen robbers that lived there Mm -hmm. who frequently fought. Think of a modern-day motorcycle gang, I guess. They were fighting and (laughs) arguing. They lived in the woods. If you passed by and you had nice stuff, they killed you and took your stuff. That kind of thing. Happened a lot. And uh, yeah, happened a lot. And that's, you know, Robin Hood, but not as nice kind of situation. And <laughs> yeah, and you're probably not going to, that can go on for quite a while before you get found out. And uh, so yes, it could be exactly. very lucrative. Right. So there was this idea that they were there and maybe that's why it was called Shades of Death. They, they called the whole area Shades of yeah. Death. That's one rumor. The other possible rumor is that sometimes those folks would be caught by local vigilantes. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you if you don't know about vigilantes, listen to our series on Henry Plummer, the outlaw sheriff. Right. Yeah, it's a good callback to that, which out in Montana. But the vigilantes would catch the highwaymen and hang them up from a tree called the Hanging Tree, which Patrick McFadden tells us is still there. He, yeah. he knows where it is. And that would be a message to other criminals. It's like, you come around here, we're going to string you up. And you start killing locals or people that are traveling in and out of here, we're going to string you up. And maybe that's why it's Shades of Death Road. Right. right? And, and part of the uh, the branches would hang over the road. And yes. as again, as you said, as a warning for people passing through. And that's also a very long, nasty human tradition. Heads on pikes and bodies strung up and people being left there as a message. But of course, now people claim to have seen ghostly specters of bodies hanging from the trees in modern times now. And they don't know the stories. And they don't, right, they don't know the stories. And then you wonder if you could find out that that never really happened, if there's no reports of that and nothing uh, official, you could say, well, that goes to show that that's all made up. People are just making up these stories because they heard these old legends of people being hung, strung up there. And I think that there's a connection where it doesn't matter if that original story is true or not for people to see something like that. Yeah. You know what I'm getting at? It's like, like I said, people yeah, who want to, yeah. and should look at it skeptically and with a historical eye, say, well, you know what? There's really no reports of anybody ever being hanged there, lynched. There's no record of it, not even any of the old police records that took track of everything else that was going on in the time. So we think that that's false, yet people keep seeing that. It's a little then like the goat man, <laughs> In, uh, right. in Texas, that there was never any record or any local knowledge of anybody ever selling uh, a goats there, known as the goat man, and him being lynched, yet people claim to see this specter. You know what I'm saying? It's a weird aspect of that, where it doesn't really necessarily depend on accurate history for people to see something weird, and that might be part of the collective consciousness, the subconscious, the projection of that. And I think a lot of times, even people who don't know that that is part of the legend around that area will see something that's connected and it just springs up. And that's also part of why these legends persist and get born. And so, like I said, this is a very good uh, case study of legends springing out because of strange things happening. And again, it could just also be an area where a lot of natural weather phenomenon happens, or like you said, mist rising up or St. Elmo's Fire, whatever your choice is of a of strange natural phenomenon happening. But 
there definitely does seem to be a lot of bad activity here, and that's what's been passed down to the locals as common knowledge. That's a possible explanation. That's something we've mentioned before is how does all of this stuff work? Right. And it's not something I used to think about until we covered uh, the vertical plane and the siren call of hungry mm-hmm. ghosts. It's you start to think about or if you believe any of this at mm. all, what are the origins of these things? One of the other possibilities for Shades of Death Road's name origin, though, is that it might be connected to a malaria outbreak. And originally it just had shady trees on the road. It yeah. was called Shade Road or Shades right. Road. And then there was the malaria outbreak, and it was a recurring outbreak that happened uh, on an annual basis. There was a set of uh, mosquitoes, a mosquito family, Mm, if you will, mm -hmm. that lived, I think, near Jenny Jump, near the ridge, that would uh, supposedly come out, at least that was the legend, they would come out and uh, spread malaria, and families had no way to fight it, and they would lose lots of people every year, and it was all around that area, and so it became Shades of Death Road for that reason. Well, like Parashaney that we've covered a long time ago. That's right. Outbreaks of cholera can devastate entire areas. And yeah. Yeah, then you look at the headstones and it's a lot of children, a lot of, uh, like I said, there, there's nothing to stop it. And people freak out. Same thing uh, uh, more recently with Duffy's Cut. Yes. That could be a reason for a massacre of just like, well, let's just get rid of all these people. We don't even know. So burn everything. Yeah, that's true. And so yes, a lot of tragedy follows these out, outbreaks like this. And uh, But you're, you're right, is that they had no idea how to stop this, except that uh, now swaths of people are getting sick. And that's a really horrible way to go. Yeah, and it actually, that actually also reminds me of uh, cemeteries. I was visiting a friend on Cape Cod years ago and went to a, a very old cemetery out there. And the whole cemetery was Spanish flu victims, and mm-hmm. a lot of them were children. Yeah. And it's just tragic. You walk into the cemetery, and like, oh, cool, old cemetery. And you look around, and like everybody's four years old, right, six years right. old. It's horrible. Yeah. 1915. Yeah. These things do happen, and the malaria outbreaks happen. And so what would be the real reason, though, that this place is called this? But before we go any further into that in the historical background, let's look at some of the stories we've heard about Shades of Death Road. There is also a cave in uh, Jenny Jump State Park that's it's marked on Google Maps, if you want to go there mm-hmm. and check it out, called the Fairy Hole. <laughs> and uh, right. this cave is, some people have talked about it, you know, obviously, why is it called the Fairy Hole? Have people been seeing fae or woodland creatures there? We, we didn't find evidence of that, but you do wonder why it's called that. They did find some artifacts in there, some arrowheads and things like that, mm-hmm. and archaeologists determined that it didn't seem like a high traffic area. It seemed more like a resting hmm. place for hunters where because right. there were a few objects in there, but not any clear evidence of long-term habitation or other types of rituals or... Right, bones, discarded fire pits, uh, lots of layers of, right, discarded, uh, yeah, people, whatever people leave behind. And there are other stories of if you're driving along the road and you look out the car and a deer is running along next mm-hmm. to you slowly or at the, along with the car, you are to slow down and watch out because you are about to have a deer collision. Well, other deer may be following it. Yeah, there be there's several in tow. They're going to jut out from the road. You might think that, but the story is that ah. this first deer that you see is a shapeshifter and a warning, and it's trying to protect you because you have an imminent deer collision. Well, that's a nice public service announcement of sorts. Yeah, it's, you know, it's like a, the opposite of a skinwalking wolf. Right, who's just out to scare or ride? (laughs) That's a common uh, thing that people see. I don't know why, but it—I don't wouldn't say it was a trope. Perhaps maybe it is, or some kind of uh, supernatural motif. But running alongside the car as people are moving, seeing things moving 
in a way that they shouldn't be. I, I don't know what that's about, but you see that here. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, even when we covered the show uh, for Giants, talked about not really putting a lot of stock in some of the local legends there, but he did see something running through the woods that was really large. I mean, like comically right. large, right. and it's very thick brush, and that shouldn't be the case. It was either himself or his a very good friend of his that he trusts, uh, who is native and native to the area, claim that as well. So yeah, it's just a, it's just a common thing. Things like to chase moving objects. So you see that here, but really it is a warning to slow down. That there could be uh, other objects, uh, creatures coming out, and then the the first one disappears. And like you said, that's a, it's a nice public service announcement. So not everything is dangerous on uh, Shades of Death Road. Mm-hmm. There is also a little dirt road that's an offshoot called Lenape Lane. And right, right. supposedly this little lane is haunted. And if you drive down, it's kind of, I guess it's basically just looks like a driveway and there's a, a small abandoned building there or something. And folks say if you drive down this road, you might see orbs. Mm-hmm. And uh, Patrick has a story like that. We'll share some details mm-hmm. from that in a minute. Not just there, but in other places. You see an orb that's white, and then if it turns red, it means you're going to die. It's a warning to get out of there. Yeah, so yeah, trouble's it's a coming. to get out get, of there. Get out. Trouble is on the way. So uh, I think one of the spookier stories is more rooted in possible true crime, which was uh, supposedly in the, in the 90s, I guess, in the mm-hmm. early 90s. There was a discovery of a cache of Polaroids of bound up women found in the grass. And this was a very hard story to track down. But they said there were a lot of pictures of a lot of different women who seemed like they were legitimately in distress. And supposedly you could tell they were alive, their eyes were open, and they appeared to be alive, but they also appeared to be tied up or possibly being tortured or held hostage. Well, yeah, again, that one is a bit spurious, although the claim by locals is that several caches or scatterings of Polaroids have been found by different groups of hikers and people going through the woods at different times. As if somebody who, yeah. whoever was doing this, whoever's freaky collection this was, was out there scattering these things at different opportunities in a weird, perverted way for people to find and take some joy in that, which we've seen right. before. That is a, an MO of some that they want to uh, have their work seen. But then you wonder... They didn't really come across as, or from the descriptions I read, not so much as crime scene photos. It could have been some freaky play, but they were very disturbing and out of focus, and you really couldn't tell who they were. And some of the local folks would say, oh, well, these are missing people. These are people that have been reported missing for a long time. Some would say, no, uh, there's also pictures of men on stainless steel tables or slabs, Some of these women are bound. Some look like uh, they're just kind of drowsy. Some look like they're distressed, but you don't know. So it's, again, very murky and a good fodder for urban legend. And in this case, well, you know, they were turned into the police and then somehow the photos just disappeared. And that's the the weird thing about it, because apparently that story came into weird New Jersey from uh, some anonymous sources, a couple of anonymous sources. So you know what the veracity of it is, but by the same token, we know from doing the show that if there's an active investigation of something like that, then the police don't talk about it at all. So no. if it's just evidence that they can't get any leads on, then it sits around in mm-hmm. case something comes up later that they could connect it to. Yeah, which again, that's part of the tactic is you hope somebody comes forward and divulges some piece of information 
that has not been released to the public, then you know this person may know something if it's not them. You know what I'm saying? That, right, that, exactly. Uh, that's, that's a common thing. You're just seeing who comes forward. And if nobody ever comes forward, if there's no other leads, it just kind of sits there as a cold case. I don't have to tell a lot of folks that because uh, they're true crime fans as well. But it's just really hard to follow up on. And there was no real police case or anything in the crime blotter that we could find. Yeah. Just, but it is local knowledge. Yeah, that's just one of the local lore kind of things. Like, oh yeah, that happened. And now, I, and I don't know if we mentioned this earlier, but there's uh, not too far from here. There's an mm-hmm. area called Bear Swamp, and Bear Swamp apparently originally was called Cat Swamp, and that was because it did have wild cats, and they would yeah. attack people. And it, this, we're not talking about melanistic or black, you know, spooky cats. We're just <laughs> yeah. talking about wildlife. Yeah, like, feral, I, you know, feral maybe cats. Uh, well, wonder. like mountain lions, cougars, whatever, bobcats, whatever might have been living in the area at the time. I don't know what would have been native to the region at the time, but it's completely feasible that in the early stages of Europeans coming into the area, that there were wild cats in the area that would chomp on you if you went down the road by yourself. So that's <laughs> another possibility. Yeah, I do wonder, uh, I didn't look fully into this, but... A lot of times people will call, especially way back when, cats just encompass a lot of things for names of all kinds of sharp-toothed small mammals, like fisher cats. You get those in Maine. Right, right, right. And they're not really a cat. I think they're more of the weasel family. And they can be vicious. Uh, I didn't learn about them until last year on our show for some reason. Yeah, it's a regional thing. No, I would say it's a regional thing. So you could have different creatures run around that people uh, back then just called cats like Kate Bat's witch. It's not really a witch. They just called every uh, errant uh, wacky spirit a witch of some kind. Wacky spirit. <laughs> well, it, it was pretty wacky. I mean, <laughs> that should be by the, we should do like Clooney and start our uh, tequila company and call it wacky spirit. I oh, I love wacky I like spirits. It. Yeah, I love it. We still need to get uh, Dan Eckert on to talk about his crystal skull vodka. Uh, yeah. All he's going to say is buy it and drink it. Yeah, I'm Give not. Uh, that's all I'm going to say about it. So. But yeah, in this area here, I think you, again, that can add to the lore, even when it's natural. Like if somebody sees like too many cats, let me put it, you know what I'm saying? Like it's, there's something unnatural. We're going to be talking about one of the reality ghost hunting shows that come up. And the reason it made me think of that is that there is a large swath of birds in the sky that come up as soon as they pass. And from what we saw, it was odd looking as they drove by that there's a huge flock of birds. It wasn't what would be called murmuration, where they, they're they in an undulating swath, right, and and uh, making patterns in the sky. It just seems like a lot of birds yeah. flew up at that one moment there. And then, you know, like I said, the human nature, you could take that as an omen. Is that what's going on here? Is that, uh, are they all from here? If you looked up, you're enjoying cooling your feet in the little pond there, you look up and now there's 50 cats all around you. That might be taken as... That's a little worrisome. Right. I, I think we touched on this before. I did I did want to provide a little more detail on the murders in the area because there's a couple of famous cases mm-hmm. that always get mentioned. There's one where apparently uh, a woman decapitated her husband and buried his body on one side of the street and his head on the other. Yeah. I did look for that case in the newspaper archives. I had a hard time finding anything to corroborate that. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, mm-hmm. That's one that comes up, and a lot of people repeat it a lot. There's another uh, story. Supposedly, a guy was hit over the head with a tire jack, and gold coins were taken. And Mm. then finally, there's one with a name. And it's funny, you see this one on Reddit, because someone mentioned this on Reddit for somebody looking for historical records on murders of Shades of Death Road. This was posted two years ago. Mm Mm-hmm. 
by user Scotty McGeester. It says, I, I'm looking for actual historical records or reports on murders committed on Shades of Death Road. I made a YouTube video about me driving through there, but when I read up on the history of the road, I could not find hard evidence of some of the specific murders that were supposed to have occurred there. Literally everything I find is hearsay, and I'm curious to dig deep into records for actual murders, not accidents. There seems to be a lot of car accident reports. Mm-hmm. The wiki mentions an unsolved murder of a man named Bill Cummins in the 1920s or 30s, but I want to find the actual report on his murder and proof that this wasn't made up. The wiki page just made references to the Weird New Jersey book, but I have that book, and there's no references to any primary or secondary source about the murder. And then it says, I might have found a source through my university library that covers the murder of Bill Cummins based on the abstract that I can read, but my university is a, I'm going to say bleep, to alumni Mm. (laughs) and won't let me read the full article. The article is from the Express Times about Shades of Death Road. It's a newspaper from Easton, PA, and they covered some New Jersey news. So we couldn't find that exact article that that user was talking about, but we did find one called Shades of Death Road's Haunting Tales. This is from July 6, 2015, and it repeats all these same cases. This story was featured under Weird New Jersey in the paper, so the I guess the source may still be the Weird New Jersey people. Yeah, so it just says right here, a man was murdered with a jack from his car over gold coins, a wife murdered her husband and buried his head on one side of Shades of Death Road, and his torso on the other, and lastly, a local resident, Bill Cummins, was shot near his home and buried under a pile of muck. His murder was never solved. Hmm. So there's some uh, truth to that. Well, I mean, I guess, I don't know. Again, this is coming from weird New Jersey, but we might be able to add some more details to this here a little bit later on tonight. I'm leaving you in the dark on a particular piece of information that's missing here that I think we might have a connection to or Mm -hmm. have found a connection to. All right, so this next story, before we get into some of the historical stuff that we uncovered about this mm-hmm. area, it mm-hmm. comes from Patrick McFadden. And he told this story, again, on episode 162 of Somewhere in the Skies. If you look up Somewhere in the Skies on Spotify or wherever and you search uh, Shades of Death, that episode will come up. But as we said before, Ryan put us in touch with Patrick. He was going to come on our show. And uh, we were supposed to uh, talk to him today, but he had a work emergency come up and he was unable to make it. So we're hoping to have him on the junk drawer to tell this story to us himself. So if you're not already a member at patreon.com astonishing legends, if you go over there and sign up, uh, you can check out the junk drawer. We've got 27 of them in the can and those are all up there. So the minute you join, you'll be able to watch 27 junk drawers, which is 27 hours, probably more like 30 because they're usually run long. Hmm. 30 hours or more of live on video stuff of us really being candid. That show's very different from Astonishing Legends. Yammering away. (laughs) But yes, they're a lot of fun. And we we get to just be more relaxed and talk about interesting things, just not uh, so... uh, tight about it, tightly wound about it. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And uh, if you listen to our show, uh, most of the time at the very beginning of the show, before the show starts, if you didn't hear a commercial, which sometimes those get put in there by our hosts or whatever, but like you'll hear a a promo usually made up from the most recent junk drawer every now and then if we miss posting one, it'll be an older one. But Mm -hmm. yeah, those are slices of the junk drawer on Astonishing Legends. So anyway, we're hoping to have Patrick on there, but he did give us permission to share this story with our listeners. So we're going to share it with you now. And this has to do with Ghost Lake. Now, one of the interesting things that we talked about earlier was Ghost Lake. And I think I mentioned that the Iroquois and the Lenape had fought, and it was possible that the Iroquois had put the dead Lenape into the lake. But that actually doesn't make sense, right, Forrest? Because the lake isn't that old. Well, according to the local lore, that lake was basically flooded by two farmers 
or people who own the area there to create that lake. So that's man-made. And again, we do know that it's very marshy around there. There's a lot of groundwater. Yes. There's been a lot of struggle to try and clear it by the settlers. But we do know that a lot of farmers and settlers tried to clear the land of the excess water by draining it. But not a lot of luck. It would uh, it would drain. They wouldn't get enough uh, effort into the process. The water would come back again. So it is a bit of a marshy area. But what the story here tells us is that it's not very big at all. So keep that in mind. It's more like a swimming hole or a fishing hole <laughs> back in, the, right. in those days. Not very, uh, you can see the whole thing by standing on the edge of it and looking all the way around. There's nothing that's obscured uh, from it, which uh, goes to make the story even creepier. But yeah, it's like a swimming hole type size. And it was created. Now, the story is that if there are any Native people buried there, it's it was more, it would either be more natural or as a way of being dumped there by your enemies who, who, uh, who murdered you, that that's where they were, and then the water was let in upon them. You know what I'm saying? So now right. the area was yes. flooded over the grave sites, which right. then means that they, if they're coming up out of the uh, out of the ground, they're going through the water, and it looks like they're coming out of the lake. That they may have been uh, dumped in the lake, but that would not be accurate chronologically. So, right. but it's entirely possible, yeah, that there uh, have been people and animals and all sorts of things buried in that spot where the water is now throughout the centuries. And it's a conflation. Again, that's what I love about this. It's like layer upon layer of things that uh, did happen, things that may be embellished, things that uh, were only supposed after uh, many years after the reality of it, but they all come together. But here's the interesting thing. You know, it's not that old if you're talking about the early right. 1900s in no. the grand scheme of things, the history of America and the history of the world, and, the, and definitely the history of the indigenous people to this continent. Mm -hmm. So do you think those two farmers, when they flooded it, do you think they just immediately went, let's call it Ghost Lake? <laughs> well, or that happened later because of the the pillars of mist that everybody was seeing. It's like, if you go up there, yes. you're going to see these apparitions coming out of the water. From right. here on out, this place is Ghost Lake. I'm going to guess the latter, that it's because yeah. of the seeming mist. Now, Scott, you've been uh, towards the fall, especially, or in the spring, been near a body of water when the air is cooler than the water vapor coming off the uh, the lake or the lake itself. So sure. then you get a mist and it's pretty even. It's a very yes. cool effect. I've seen that quite a bit myself. It's like smoke or fog from a fog machine at yeah. Halloween kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. but it's, it's yeah. all over the lake. It's not just two columns coming out of the lake by itself. Right. So keep that in mind when you listen to this. There is a different type of mist coming out altogether, if it is mist at all. But once again, we have two things happening in the same spot. You have uh, perhaps natural burials, and you have a flooding of the area much later. But I will say, as far as the name goes, when you say it's Ghost Lake, yeah, that does seem more like local urban legend lore. But I will say this, in the region from where I am from, there is a lake called Spirit Lake. And I always, right. I never knew as a kid what that meant. It's just like, oh, that's kind of a cool name. And then you learn, it's like, well, no, that wasn't the white settlers coming in naming that. That name came from the Native Americans who settled around the lake and claimed that it was chock full of spirits, that it was a very mystical place and that uh, spirits could be seen quite often. I don't know a whole lot about that aspect of it, of the Native American uh, lore, of their own that surrounds the lake, but that is where the name came from by the indigenous folks, not the gringos. You know what I'm saying? So 
sometimes you do get a name that is more authentic, at least with more ancient lore than it is more modern spooky vibe stuff. Right. And, that, and that's what's interesting about this case. It's not going to necessarily be attributed to local Native Americans because the body of water didn't come along until the 1900s. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as, as you always say, you're like, when a business or a government acknowledges something right. that's official, and I'll tell you right now, <laughs> in uh, Google, you look yeah. on Google Maps or Google Earth or any map, and what you will see when you zoom in on this area is that Ghost Lake is called Ghost Lake. It's not just a nickname. Right. No, no. It, that's its official <laughs> name now. It's stuck. I will say this as well, is that unless you have some hydrologists and geologists studying it, they may take core samples and can tell you if there was standing water of any significance there hundreds of years ago, thousands of years right. ago. I mean, there, there clearly was a creek. At yes, the very there, least, there was a creek and they do know right. it was marshy, right? So there could have been, uh, like I said, natural water accumulating there. And if it's three, four, five feet deep, like that's enough to throw some folks in that uh, you don't really care yeah. to deal with. You know what I'm saying? Right. So you don't know. You can't just rule one thing out uh, or the other. You really have to study it. And then, uh, you know, who's got time for that to establish the name? If there's really any bodies that have been thrown in it. And if there are indigenous graves, then you are not uh, allowed to touch it or you shouldn't and disturb right. it. Unless uh, with permission, you have to put it all back. So yeah, there's a lot going on there. And, and it's just kind of left to local legend that people were dumped in there. And also victims of crime later on. Right. That may have happened after the turn of the 20th century. Let's share Patrick's stories before we get into the historical uh, information that we uncovered. These are some pretty good stories, and he lives right there, or at least did. I believe he's still living very close Mm -hmm. by, but essentially he grew up in that area. So Patrick decided to go fishing at Ghost Lake around 9 Mm p.m., and he was uh, 17 years old at the time, according to him. For whatever reason, he needed to get a ride up there, so his girlfriend took him up to the lake, and he said, you know what, come back in an hour and a half and pick me up. I'm just going to do a little fishing. And so she dropped him off. He goes up to the lake. He walks down to the water, and he starts fishing. And again, as Forrest said a minute ago, at larger lakes, a lot of times there's places where the shoreline cuts in, or there's little inlets or coves, and you can't really see everything. But Ghost Lake, and you can tell this even from looking at it on Google Mm -hmm. Earth or Google Maps, or if any of you have been there, because a lot of people have, strangely, our composer for the show, who normally lives in Tennessee, is really close to Ghost Lake right yeah. now. He was like, I can go over there. <laughs> so um, Alan Caressia, yeah. whose music is amazing. You mm-hmm. hear it in all the cold opens and, and a lot of the stories now. He's our new composer. But anyway, so Patrick is up there. He's fishing. He's standing in the water. He describes himself as like if he's at a 6 o'clock position, he notices at a 10 o'clock position around the shoreline mm-hmm. a little bit, he sees another fisherman. Yeah. And the fisherman looks a lot like him. He says he's got a baseball cap pulled right. tightly down over his head. And he's standing in the water fishing at the same time. But the one thing is that Patrick couldn't seem to see the legs on this other individual. Yes. Now, I, I think because it is dark. I mean, people night fish, certainly. They they will yeah. they will bite. But generally, you have some kind of an aid, like a light. And, and in some areas, this is uh, illegal to do because it will attract a lot more fish. And yeah. you know, it's not really cheating, but you're, <laughs> you're going to catch over your limit, perhaps. People will fish with a lantern hanging over the, the boat because the light yes. will attract the fish. I've been fishing myself years ago with a lure that is a little tiny glow stick. And you snap it, and it puts out a glow. Yes. And... And that will help attract fish. Patrick is just out there with a rod and a reel 
on his own, it sounds like. I mean, yes. there's not a whole lot of detail. We may have to get a, see what he can remember from his time there. But of course, remember, it's decades ago. This was 30, would be 30 years ago for him. And right, when he told right. it on, on Ryan's show, it would have been 27 or 28 years ago, I think. So for, yeah. But, but speaking to the odd aspect of that is that he looks over and he notices that the guy doesn't seem to have any rod or reel or tackle <laughs> or tackle right. box. He's just there. And then... I think at night, because like I said, it could be misty and maybe a little hard to see, although he can clearly see that there's a guy there. That's not an illusion or a uh, barrage of anything. He just looks down. It's like, okay, the atmospherics are such that I can see my own legs. Why can't I see this guy's legs? Yeah. He described a little mist in the air. He didn't say specifically when he told the story, he didn't say specifically that there was a fog. No. He may have meant fog, but like he didn't describe it as any sort of obscuring atmospheric effect, as you just said. It just like a little bit misty, maybe. Here's the other thing I'll say is when you see something very strange, I think your brain doesn't put it together right away. Like you don't clock it, as they say. You know what I'm saying? It doesn't, it, it may be until much later, then you realize like, I don't think I saw the guy's legs the bottom half or like from below the knee the guy just kind of faded out and that is a very common apparition there's a pretty good ghost photo that i like from a uh, a theater and there's a children's performance like a dance troupe happening on stage off to the side near the wings you see a woman a dancer pretty modern looking halfway doing a twirl and her legs kind of fade out at the bottom you know, it's one of those unexplainable ghost photos, but it's like, well, that's interesting. And it's like, it could be, again, if you're trying to define this, put some taxonomy on it. Is that a partial echo of something that just happened there? Is she a, a once human spirit that's only materializing with so much energy, but doing the same thing like dancing on stage as she may have done years ago? Or perhaps it's just, like I said, just a uh, residual echo of person energy and the visual image there. Now, one thing about, keep in mind about Patrick's story is that this thing, uh, whatever it is, looks like him. I think that's significant. And as he starts to move, I mean, here's the other odd thing. (laughs) Again, it's odd being there. He's much braver than I, perhaps. He starts trying to walk towards the guy, maybe just to talk to him or just get a better look at him. Working his way around the shoreline, kind of casually and sort of pretending that he's fishing, but... His goal yeah. is to get closer to this person. And because he, he said, you know, I probably know this guy. I'm from the area. I grew up here. Yes, that's the I reason I probably too. know the guy. I'm going to try to get a little closer yeah. and see if I can talk to him or something. Yeah, who's there? Like, again, only so many people in a community would go fishing, fishing at night. And it looks like him. It's probably his age. You know, there's a lot of factors like, ah, oh, I'm just going to go say hi. But as he yeah. starts to take his steps towards this thing, it keeps an equidistance to him. Yeah, he can't get closer. And this is the part of the story that freaked me out when I first heard it. Right. As he moves closer, this thing is, uh, I keep saying thing, I I guess, well, you be the judge. It is staying the exact same distance from him as he moves. Now, if it was a person, then he's just being kind of coy. Maybe he doesn't want to be bothered. I think that's what Patrick thought at first. Is like, oh, well, all right, eventually, maybe I can see this guy's trying to move away. Maybe he doesn't, you know, it was a tangle of a line doesn't want me scaring his fish away, just doesn't want to talk, is maybe he's afraid of me. You know, like, again, it's <laughs> 10 o'clock at night. Yeah, maybe he has social anxiety disorder. Well, there you go. There could be a whole host of reasons. As he's moving, though, I think at one point, he moved so close to him that eventually it looked like this guy was standing in the middle of the water. I'm very curious about how he, if this guy was just taking the same route or 
as if he were, here's my theory, a projection of some kind of Patrick, a visual projection of him looking so similar to him, similarly dressed, not fully there, but as he turned, this thing was uh, at such an angle that it looks like now he's standing in the middle of the water, which doesn't make any sense for somebody fishing, right? But it would fit uh, without the lower legs portion, right? Yeah, <laughs> so. right. So he, he keeps working his way around the shoreline. Again, keep in mind, you can see the shoreline from any vantage point. You can see the whole shoreline. And additionally, he could also see the trailhead where he came in. Right. And so he's working his way around, trying to get closer to the guy. The guy keeps being the exact same distance away from him. And mm -hmm. then he gets around to the position where he first saw the guy. And he sees no footprints, like you said, no tackle box, no gear of any kind, yeah. no trace that the person was ever there. Mm -hmm. And then he looks over now, and the guy is way around the lake at the other end, the same distance from him again. And then he turns and walks away from the lake towards three trees, just three, three mm -hmm. trees standing there, and goes behind the trees and never comes back out. Right. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Game over. That's the end of this encounter. So then... Well, he, go, he goes over to, to, uh, yeah, to see he goes where over. he disappeared and again, to. Yeah. yeah, this is... Uh, I'm just going to say, this is a courageous person, Patrick. You're a <laughs> courageous man. I know you're listening to well, this. perhaps your curiosity... Well, here's... Okay, here's what I'll say is that uh, this isn't the only strange thing that's happened to Patrick uh, throughout the years. And maybe no. you do get a little more braver. Or your curiosity overcomes your fear. And it's just like, I, yeah. what happened to this guy? Can I see any footprints? Is he just coyly playing a game? You know, like I said, it's probably somebody I know. Right. It's like, dude, right. are you goofing on me? What are you doing? And uh, he goes over there. Yeah, just nobody there. And there's nowhere for this person to have gone. There's no trail out from where he was. There's no road in that he uh, could have ducked behind. It backs up against the ridge or the ledge there of uh, some rocks and trees. And so unless he had climbing gear with him, which again would be an odd prank to <laughs> brought in just to freak somebody out at that moment, or he's just so desperate to get away, he starts mountain climbing over the ridge. This guy, for all intents and purposes, just vanished, whatever it was. And so at this point, though, I think finally Patrick is now starting to get creeped out and it's time to go. Yeah, so he heads back to the trailhead, and he's like, I'm going to go out and wait for my girlfriend. And I think he was thinking a little bit earlier than he she was supposed to be there, because I think he'd been there about an hour. Yeah, he, he proposed two hours, right? So he said, about two hours, come get me. Yeah, I think he said 90 minutes, actually. And I oh, think it could he have been went shorter. out for like an hour. Yeah, and then he got out there about an hour. He's like, I'll only have to wait 30 minutes. So he's waiting and waiting. Mm-hmm. Whatever the case, he gets out there a little early. He's waiting for her. He winds up waiting a super long time. She doesn't show up. So he's like, I'm going to hike the long way. This was a while back. He didn't mm -hmm. have a cell phone. So now he's hiking to the nearest payphone. And it, it's a little bit of a walk. I think a mi couple miles maybe. Yeah. So he walks to the payphone and he calls her and she's by the phone. She's And she was upset. She was like, I came to the lake. <laughs> you were not there. Yeah. She goes, I came down to the trailhead. I was there five minutes. I was yelling your name where were you? And he's like, that's impossible. I was on the shoreline the whole time. I was also watching the trailhead the whole time. Right. There's no way that you were there and I didn't know you were there. Yeah. And she said, well, that's what happened. 
And then she came and picked him up. So, yeah. well, she was livid because she thought he was goofing around. You know, it's like, were yeah. you hiding out there or would you go somewhere else and you didn't tell me? And again, yeah. this is a pre cell phone era here. Or at least he didn't have one. So he goes to the payphone and she figured, as she told him, you weren't going to make it the whole two hours. Like, you're probably not yeah. that anything bad was going to happen. It was just that you're probably not going to catch any fish. You're, it's late. Right. You're going to be tired. I'll just come 90 minutes instead of the full two hours, I think is how the story went. Yeah. And uh, she shows up and he's nowhere to be found, is yelling for him, and they don't see each other. That was the second part that freaked me out, is that yeah. where did he go? Right. We've heard of these things as well. You know, our friend, uh, our good friend, Ed, Ed the Mechanic, who helps us on post-production and posting, helps out on the junk drawers, has a story of friends of friends that where, and I'll let him tell this. It's pretty good. But uh, usually we just hear from him on the uh, on the junk drawers. A friend of a friend that uh, were at some spooky haunted location, as kids do, poking around in the woods, heading towards this place. And it seemed one, I believe they were brothers. One brother was yelling to the other one finally or calling out to him. The other one could not hear him. And it was like he was in a paranormal phone booth. Right. In a supernatural bubble of that blocked all the audio and couldn't get his attention. And he finally caught up to me. He's like, dude, there's three of us here. None of us heard you. And he's like, I was yelling at you guys. You know, you don't because they weren't supposed to be there. I think they were trying to at first be quiet. But he ends up yelling. And at that point, they're like, Okay, time to turn around. At that, <laughs> that's yeah. true. Yeah. And why yeah. wouldn't you believe, you know, it's your own brother? So they just hightailed it out of there. Uh, so that was pretty creepy. But we've heard of stories like that where things cannot be seen or heard. And in this case, it's both. He could not be seen or heard. And so, like I said, did he go anywhere? And it makes me wonder, did anything abscond with him for a little while? Well, he was not to be there. Well, and that's how it always starts, right? With the Pukwudgies and the Fae and whatever, they lead you off to somewhere else, yeah. either to convince you to jump off a cliff or right. fall to your death or disappear into God knows where. That's what they do. They lead you away. Well, you, you fall into uh, the underside, the underworld. What's the place the called? Down. Uh, the upside down. The upside there you down. go. Yeah. Where yeah. it's it looks exactly the same. I'm fascinated by these kind of... Uh, space-time slips where you're you're just beneath the transparent tarpaulin of reality and yeah. so you can see out maybe but they can't see you or vice versa and here's the interesting thing like how do you discuss that because i i think as he described it she was still very upset with him and now he just sounds preposterous like you expect me to believe that right and he right. doesn't know what right. to think it's like because he knows he was there yeah and so to right. her point like well again i don't know her outlook especially uh as younger kids on the paranormal if they had heard even stories like that and could wrap their head around it because she just thinks like dude that what do you think i'm stupid i'm not going to believe that so this is all very fascinating and you can't do anything with it you just have to kind of set that on the shelf as a very odd experience but i do wonder if all of the elements of his story are accurate what happened where did he go yeah. how was yeah. he cloaked and why was something doing that so again i don't know if it was some other entity or if it was a projection of him being mirrored <laughs> it always made me think of a little bit like a arnold schwarzenegger in total recall when they had that device that would mirror you yes or in the, yeah. in the shootout and it kind of mirrors yeah. you and they shoot at the wrong thing but you're actually behind them 
It's just projecting an yeah. image out in front of you that's mirrored. I'm pretty sure he he stole that from Bruce Lee when he was in the house. Did he the, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> enter the dragon? Just the idea. Yeah. yeah. Enter the dragon. Oh, that was yeah. so cool. What a great uh, drive-in theater movie. It, it would just be very unnerving to see all that. And from her perspective, she didn't see anything. Yeah. She just gets crazy. a weird story. Like I said, that uh, he's got to live with that. So after that incident with him, I think he said uh, he did not go back until about six months later to that, right. that area. When a good friend of his, I think he told the friend, and he's like, well, we should go down there and check that out. Do you remember on uh, Lenape Lane, people see orbs? That's also part of the lore. Like, let's go check that out. And uh, right. <laughs> again, right. he and did. Again, this is a one, single lane dirt road that's mm-hmm. more like a driveway that has an old stable or something at the yeah. end of it or off to the side of it. So that's where they decide to go and drive back in there. And so they go back in there. They get out of the car. Mm-hmm. They're walking around, and uh, they walked at 25, 50 yards into the forest, didn't really see anything for a minute. Yeah, it, it, at first, again, that's uh, it's dark out there. Oh, I had one other note I made here oh, that yeah. I want to talk to you about, because again, it connects to a story, and, and I try to get better at making these kind of connections. I have mentioned this before, because it is one of my favorite Halloween listener story submissions from from this last Halloween that somebody sent in. And uh, we have to apologize it didn't get picked, but we certainly kept that in in the group one of stories. It's a little longer in that case in that uh, several things happened by this woman talks about having visited the Middle East. And I think some reason it could be academic. Uh, She's there with a a tour guide or group that shows you around the area for a specific amount of time. You have a tour guide there who's local who shows you around the various sites. And I think she's with a group, could have been uh, maybe as many as uh, 10 to 14 people, something like that. So they're in the desert at this one location. So they're staying in, and uh, they're not really yurts, but uh, think about that where it's a fabric or rug covered sides of these small huts where they're sleeping in. And it's at night, they're out walking around. And it's the desert, it's the open desert. So it's pretty barren in this stretch, but they see somebody else. And I can't remember how far away. She may have said it's about maybe 40, 50 yards away. They see this kind of this dark figure. And at first they don't have any suspicion about it. Like, oh, is that somebody from our group? Because I think they were out, people were out at nights, of course, a hot night and just wandering around and looking at the stars and it's beautiful out. And there's there's a hot breeze blowing through. And they see this dark, shadowy figure, and they just think it's somebody else from the tour group. So as they start walking towards this, saying, like, hello, hello, and and they're starting to walk towards it, they notice that they never get any closer to this thing. Mm -hmm. Yes. And after about, right, and after a while, it starts to not make any sense. Like, we've been walking for about five minutes. We should be there by now. And it's not moving. It's not like this thing is moving away from them because it seems kind of stationary. Right. And then that's when the very uneasy feeling washes over them. Like, is this a djinn? Because it's a very dark, right. shadowy figure. And I don't know if it was like the Ifrit with the, uh, with the wings. It was a winged djinn, but this seemed like a regular person, I think. They had no fear at first walking towards it because your first uh, inclination is that it's not a supernatural being. But then you start to put right. it together. Like, oh, the Middle East, ancient, desert, djinn. Dark figure, not coming any closer to it. And then I think at that point, and this is the part I don't remember quite as well, 
I can't remember if they started to walk back and at some point, again, with the pebbles, uh, they're getting pelted with pebbles or it could have happened while they were back in their fabric sided huts. And they have a metal frame with these things. And I think something was also like shaking the door violently when there was no lock, like it couldn't get in. Anyway, it's a great story. Yeah. We hope to do the story more justice in the future, more fully. But for now, again, it's, uh, yeah, one of my favorite, just because it's it's a very evocative night in the ancient desert sands kind of feeling. But also, but it reminded me, you're not getting any closer to this thing. <laughs> it's a fisherman. Yeah. It's a gin, whatever it is. It's keeping its distance. And at some point you decide it's better to go the other way. Yeah. Uh, sorry for that uh, tangent there, but we're back to Lenape Lane and uh, they're looking to see if they can see any orbs. Yeah, so they're out there in the woods and then suddenly they start to see these lights flashing, like bright white lights flashing. He described them almost as looking like flashlights. In the canopy of the tr- of the shrub, right. And the other trees, like far back from them. And so then they realize that they're flashing in different locations, almost like people trying to do Morse code between each other, rapidly turning on and off. Mm-hmm. And they can't figure out what it is. And they keep trying to close in on it or zero in on it. And they just can't get to the bottom of where these lights are coming from. And so after a period of time, they decide that maybe it might be a good idea to leave. They head back to the car. They tear out of there. And so these lights said they could be orbs, even though he's, mm-hmm. he felt he described them as sworn as flashlights. But fortunately for him, they never turned red because supposedly the stories <laughs> are if it turns red, right. death is imminent. So that was another experience he had. He had one final experience. Well, he described this uh, uh, towards the end of his appearance mm-hmm. on Sprague's show. He mentioned one that actually was the first experience he had was when he was 15. So this was two years before he went swimming at Ghost Lake. Mm-hmm. He was camping with his father, and they were up on Jenny Jump, up on the mountain. And while they were up there, they could see everything. They had a really good view. They could actually see Ghost Lake. They could see above the canopy of trees. And down in the trees, there were lights flashing rapidly right. that looked like lightning. But they were beneath the canopy, this lightning. Yeah, as if people were taking a bunch of flash pictures. Yeah, he said he described it as almost like someone was running through the woods, setting off a flash on a camera over and over. And he said his dad was a very rational man of science and was looking down there. And he said, I don't want to say that he was scared, but he was, he seemed to imply that he was clearly perplexed. Mm -hmm. It was very much of a, well, that's unusual. I don't, you know, (laughs) that that almost looks like lightning or something. I can't really explain it. Now, I think they were far enough away that they didn't sense any imminent danger from, Mm -hmm. but that's also in this same area. And, And this is somebody who grew up around that area. So this gives you a broad overview of his experiences in the neighborhood of Shades of Death Road and Ghost Lake. And, and Forrest, you had a few additional details to share about Patrick's experiences, right? Well, there's a whole laundry list. And, and part of these are, some of these are his, or he's connected to them. And some are just the local lore of the of the community. Right. But just a little roundabout here, a little Strange Tales roundup here. Yes, he did talk about uh, it was two men who flooded the little area to create the lake, but they believe that they was just covering up old burial grounds. There is an old abandoned house and that every kid loves to go explore an old abandoned house. This one was out in the woods close by, more of a a cabin, but bigger than a cabin because it had, and this sounds very interesting, and he claims it had a piano built into the wall. Yeah. So it sounds yeah. flush, <laughs> like a flush yeah 
to the wall piano. But this wasn't Patrick. Wait, Patrick didn't go to this cabin, did he? Well, his uh, his friends did. Oh, uh, okay. That he remembers. This would be back okay. in the early 80s is when the story started happening. Yeah, okay. Okay. Well, they claim to have heard the piano playing by itself in the dead of winter when there should be nobody there. And yeah. all kinds of strange sounds coming from this house that's abandoned. We'll have to ask him about this because this is the note that I took is that back in the 80s, there was a, there was an incident that happened that was well written about, but he does not go into any detail about what that incident was. And we couldn't really find uh, much on that. So you have your creepy abandoned house, you got your creepy cave, uh, you got your creepy lake. Oh, the other thing is that there's a, yes, that we talked about the ghost deer running by the car as you approach or you see it in the woods. So you know to slow down and then there's just nothing there or real right. deer uh, follow it. There's also reports of a Native American spirit, a guide, a man, a shaman, someone that is stands by the side of the road, also perhaps to warn you to slow down or catches your attention and that keeps you from crashing or he's just there. Waiting to hitch a ride. Uh, we talk about the hanging tree uh, that hangs over the road, and people can see uh, ghost bodies hanging from it. In the 1930s is when that woman beheaded uh, her husband, uh, supposedly. Yes. And I don't know why, but she parted him on the side of either the road, I think maybe as a statement. <laughs> so yeah. here's another one. In the 50s, there was a long-running, uh, I, I chalked this up under the Lady in White uh, Archer uh, Avenue Prom tragedy ghost gal. In the 1950s, uh, the story goes a girl was coming back from the prom. She died in a fiery crash. And she can now be seen walking the road in her burnt prom dress. Oh, yeah. Partially yes, burnt right. prom dress. So know. not yeah. necessarily white. I meant to say, but it is no, similar to the. It's uh, like Lydia from Greensboro. Uh, like Lydia. Yeah. Also like Resurrection Mary. Resurrection Mary, yeah. On course. the way to the prom. So it's all that kind of story set up for a, a good legend, right? A good urban legend. The 1990s is when those uh, hikers supposedly found those Polaroids. Yeah. And that's very vague again. So the people apparently were bound up. The eyes are half open, but as we know, people can die. Well, people die with their eyes open, unless you shut them. Yes. Or unless they die with their eyes shut already. So uh, hard to pin that down. Uh, thieves and highwaymen throughout its history. That's pretty common throughout the Old West. Uh, nothing new to see there. But yes, a lot of people were killed and not reported because you don't write back in the 1880s. It takes months to get a letter through. So your family was just not expecting to hear from you until the spring, eight months later anyway. Right. And then the whole summer passes like, eh, where's Uncle Jed? I not really yeah. heard from him. Yeah. And then uh, maybe they go looking for you. Yes. Yeah, so again, going back by my notes, he was 17 when the ghost lake thing happened. So when we talk to him, we'll have to see, again, what he recollects about that, his feelings now uh, about it, and if anything new has happened, because he is, I believe, he is a magnet for weirdness. I'm Eva from Baltimore, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now, back to the show. 
So obviously, getting down to the nitty gritty of why this story is such a big deal and it's got so much traction, a lot of it you can attribute to Weird New Jersey, which is a huge, huge source for this mm-hmm. kind of stuff and a, a wonderful source. But there's a lot of local lore surrounding it. People are talking about it culturally and there's a lot about it on the internet, like a whole lot. Like sometimes yeah. we go to look something up, it's obscure, it's hard to find things. But this one, there's just 10,000 search returns come back when you start talking about it, mm-hmm. which makes it harder to cull the information. Right. But, you know, it's an infamous story. And it, it made its way into the zeitgeist. It's fun to talk about. Yes. This whole realm, this whole genre is a an inscrutable kind of thing. You're never going to get a handle on it. Right. And I've accepted that. I think the uh, message of the show, it changes. It's always elusive. It's just out of grasp. And also, it it really depends on what you experience personally, because you can just go round and round, and and it really depends on if you like the photo. Like I said, the the Bigfoot photo is too clear. It's too blurry. Whatever your thing is, you just, uh, you're going to have to pick a spot somewhere on the, uh, the belief dial and engage each thing independently. But, but getting back to this uh, show that we originally set off to uh, talk about, I think in this case, you're starting to have a lot of uh, a mixture of, of everything. This is kind of why I like this story so much. It's historical, it's native, it's old West in a way it's modern, it's, urban legend mixed with weird phenomenon and real stuff, I think, because I believe that's possible that's happening. But you have some history and an angle on, I guess, the actual history with somebody who documented this, right? Because here's what we're asking. What is the real story? What's going on here? Well, there's always a rude story behind this stuff. We've seen this many times. You do your cursory research, Mm -hmm. you look at all the links, you try to find the sources of the information, and you just wind up going in circles. And then you realize the websites are all ripping each other off, exact words, phrases, and even the order they appear in on different (laughs) blogs, and nine times out of ten, even government websites, like the park systems that contain some of these locations. Well, who's got time to... (laughs) research on their own and and write this up. That's why I think we try to look for uh, historical societies that are local and you'll get some... uh, Yes. You'll get some uh, curmudgeonly older person who's uh, spent a lot of their time and interest writing this down. I tend to trust that. They always have a... Again, everybody's got a personality and a a point of view. And that's my point about what we were just been talking about. Because we saw that in uh, a little bit in Atchison with the local historians and that uh, they draw a conclusion based on them gathering a lifetime, you know, 25 years, 30 years of local lore and data, but they still got to draw a conclusion on it. And that's what they believe. It's like, "Eh, I don't know about that. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I don't, I'm not as studied as them, but I will give them uh, the benefit of the doubt and let them have their opinion. But here you talked earlier about finding that book and, Again, trusting the source, that's really what the conversation here is about, trusting the information, uh, going back as far as you can. And what I love is that either you or I, one of us, will find a little gem of something. It's like, oh, no one's talked about this. Yeah, that's the fun part. And because, Mm -hmm. you know, this stuff can be really hard to trace, especially when you're trying to figure out where a legend started. And, Mm -hmm. And that's fine. It's folklore. It's oral history. You can't always source where folklore starts. And that's fine. Right. 
we're just saying we like to try and get the most contemporaneous information available. And in the case of Shades of Death Road, mm-hmm. we think we've gotten as close to that, or as close as anybody has to the origins. Yeah. And, and no surprise, it all appears to trace back to a renowned folklorist, author, and researcher who went out of his way to actually track down and talk to people about all the strange and crazy stuff he observed in New Jersey. And this is way before Mark and Mark started Weird <laughs> New Jersey in 1989, right. or Atlas Obscura started up in 2009. Mm-hmm. Uh, both amazing creative endeavors that we yes. love. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, but so, mm-hmm. so who do we have to thank for this amazing source? It is the Reverend Henry Charlton Beck. He mm-hmm. was born in May of 1902 in Philadelphia, passed away in Camden, New Jersey in 1965, He is widely considered one of the original historians of New Jersey folklore, and he wrote six books about it, including his well-known Forgotten Towns of Southern New Jersey series. This series, and really all of his work, was known for detailed research, engaging storytelling, and his ability to capture and convey the uniqueness of the local characters and their stories they had to share. Yeah, yeah. He was very much into the Americana of everyday life, like a great photographer would be. He liked to capture candid thoughts and moments Mm -hmm. about legends, lore, and unusual tales from New Jersey's past. When you read his stuff, you feel like you're hanging out with the locals. And he did it with reverence, no pun intended, but he respected the local people and Mm -hmm. their stories and sought to record them for posterity, which frankly, we couldn't be more grateful for. That's the exact kind of thing we're looking for when we're trying to dig around on stuff like this. Absolutely. He reminds me a little bit here of, uh, and again, I love folks like that. I wish you and I had the good fortune and the honor to meet some folks like this and get them on tape and record them. Because it reminds me, uh, like I said, like a lot of uh, these types of characters. Remember J. Frank Dobie from the Pirates Lafitte? Yes, the Pirate Lafitte, yes. The the stories, and he's just got collections of stories from Texas and the Gulf and was quite a character himself, but a a true, uh, also an academic folklorist as well as just a guy who loved a good yarn, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah. And so, yeah, I get I get the sense. I can feel this guy and, and, and sitting there telling these stories, and, and uh, that's what's so cool about this. But really, he's got an angle in this area, and, uh, and that's what I love about it, too, is that it's just Americana. It's just life in this era here, and it wasn't all that long ago if he passed away in 1965. Yeah, that's right. And and while he was alive, he actually founded the New Jersey Folklore Society in 1945. And that was around until 1950. And then it came back from the 80s to the early 90s after his passing. Um, so you can see, even for a guy like that, it was hard to keep something like that going. But this, right. this brings us to chapter three of his book, this particular one called Tales and Towns of Northern New Jersey, mm-hmm. published in 1964 by Rutgers University Press. There's a lot of great explanations in here that lead us back to the origins of Shades of Death Road. This chapter is literally called Shades of Death Road. Mm -hmm. Uh, So he clearly took a fascination in it. Uh, We have a couple of excerpts here that we wanted to share. I'm going to read this first one now. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is from page 49 of his book. And uh, you'll hear some names in here that aren't going to mean anything to you because they're taken out of context. But uh, we'll point out the important stuff when when it makes more sense to you. Here he says, uh, now on a homespun diagram fashioned for me by kindly Floyd Linaberry are shown the ways to Belvedere, the Warren County seat, with its quiet square or green recalling New England villages, to the Danville that later became Great Meadows, and to the Cummins town that is now Vienna, not because of those who live there, but because Jacob Cummins thought more of the old Vienna he loved than of a memorial to himself. 
In this Warren region, called Pequest before the Revolution, I find strange fascination in the shades of Death Road, which skirts the blacklands of the Great Meadows as the rim of a cup, a feeling that is oddly akin to the spell cast by the name of the River Styx, mm. which flows into Lake Hopatcong. If memory serves, both names were first mentioned to me by John B. Earhart of Madison, who through the years has acted as a special kind of prompter in matters like this. Even as the name or nickname of Feebletown, or the many Feebletowns I'm sure there used to be, now suddenly seems to take on a meaning we had all but lost. I like to think of Hope, which is a small village, as most appropriately at the upper end of the Shades of Death Road, even though the Moravians who founded and built the town probably intended no connection at all. John Earhart's interest in the whole of the Great Meadows area was caught, he told me later, by a little line on one of the maps of the Jenny Jump State Forest, designating an unimproved road at the base of the mountain as the Shades of Death Road. I inquired about it, John said, and heard one fantastic story about some people killed by wildcats many, many years ago. Only recently I heard a somewhat more credible story of a series of murders in the vicinity. This last fragment of folks say from a lay preacher of a Methodist church that then served in the area as it probably still does. However, the nearest I came to a reasonable explanation for the shades of death was in a little booklet given me by a neighbor, Luther C. Skull. So again, that's the uh, John Earhart speaking to him, mm -hmm. their friends. John explained further, he was a rose grower by profession and a geologist by avocation. The man who would like to demonstrate his ability to grow roses underground. So... What's interesting about this, again, and it, talking a little bit about this, mm -hmm. is when he says that Cumminstown became Vienna, that is because in the interview in this book, he talks to Jacob Cummins, who was one of the founders of Cumminstown, right. great-grandson, who was an old man in 1964. That is what you call a source. And this is one of the great things about it. Mm -hmm. One of the things that's fascinating to me about Cumminstown and Jacob Cummins and also the uh, grandson Cummins, who is uh, spoken to in this book, is that Bill Cummins is the guy who was murdered. Right. So that's something to remember. We're finding a hard time finding that article corroborating that Bill Cummins was murdered on Shades of Death Road. So we'll just put that on your little notepad and mm -hmm. we'll come back to mm -hmm. it. But here's a brief overview of the Great Meadows area that's mentioned here, which is still what it's called today. It's an unincorporated area in Warren County that is known for its rich, boggy soil. The settlers in the area recognized in 1760 that it would be great for farming and agriculture, like the Lenny Lenape had probably recognized for the prior 6,000 years. Sure, sure. But it was a bit too soggy, so they set about trying to find ways to drain it and make it more useful. They didn't figure that out until the late 1800s. More details on that from Beck here in a bit. And I said something about this earlier, but it's also geologically significant because it's a great area to study the last great continental ice sheet, which uh, was called, the glacier was called Wisconsin, I believe. Right. It is also listed on the National Register of Historic Places, and it's the Great Meadows area that nearly bump up against Shades of Death Road, as we indicated. Beck now refers to the booklet by Luther Skull from the prior passage in this next passage. Luther Skull showed John Earhart the report of the state geologist for the year 1884 as a starter, and this included a summary of the drainage of the Great Meadows, a project which cost New Jersey the then-stupendous sum of $108,241. Some obscure notes in Luther's book seem to shed light on the shades of death, John explained. They quoted Dr. William I. Rowe of Vienna, 
as saying, in 1877, that almost 30 years before, he had been in practice for two years at Danville, on the lower border of the Great Meadows. At that time, Dr. Rose said, the prevailing diseases were, for the most part, malarial in character. The intermittents were very severe, and many of the residents expected the usual attacks of chills in the spring, while a family moving into the neighborhood from a non-malarial district seldom escaped the ravages of miasma in one form or another. John Earhart found that another physician, Dr. E.T. Blackwell of Hackettstown, had turned in this report. In 1849, I passed the year at Townsbury and saw the influence of the Great Meadows. The health of the community was good until the middle of August, when malarial diseases in great variety and of all grades of intensity became extremely prevalent. Until winter, this outbreak continued, prostrating in some instances three or four members of the same family. The year, 1850, I passed at Danville, immediately on the edge of the Great Meadows. My experience with malaria here was repeated in an intensified form. During the preceding epidemic, by shutting exposure in the nighttime and, when this was impossible, wearing a handkerchief as a respirator, I was able to avoid the worst effects upon myself. Here, at Danville, all devices failed, and I experienced to my own person its poisonous results in the attack of fever. It appeared to me, while sojourning in this neighborhood and marking the blinding effect of these influences upon the health of the people, that I could perceive in the lessened vigor and robustness of many of the residents the results of this insidious and baleful poison. According to my observation, this is by far the most malarious district in this part of the state. The outbreak of malaria always occurs when the overflow of the Pequest, drying up, leaves its sedimentary matter, as well as the earth saturated with deadly gases to the full influence of the fierce autumn sun. Sounds miserable, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And the malaria has an intensity to it. Going back to that drainage fee, you know, I always like to do the dollar conversions. Sure. To drain the Great mm -hmm. Meadow, that would be $3.4 million mm -hmm. in today's money. So now we have malaria, worst area in the state, according to Dr. Blackwell from 1849. And when is it happening? When the right. Pequest River would recede, it sounds like it left back moist ground and probably puddles that the mosquitoes thrived in. Sure. In this next passage, Reverend Beck makes reference to Barber and Howe. Uh, John Barber and Henry Howe wrote histories on multiple states, at first individually, and then after Howe read one of Barber's books in his bookstore in 1838, mm. he was impressed and they formed a partnership in 1840 and wrote several books together. They were the authors of the historical collections of the state of New Jersey, which came out in 1865, and it is most likely what Reverend Beck is referring to in this next passage. A passage from Barber and Howe is of special interest here. First, because Danville is definitely recorded as having been on an early road that swung up to the North Country, which Floyd Lineberry had said was Shades of Death Road. Second, because John Earhart had remembered the Stone Church and therefore the malarial Danville of old, he had used the direct road through Great Meadows to the Delaware Water Gap, that mecca of holiday seekers amidst the lost glories of the railroad era at its peak. You may remember one reaction to the events that led to that era curiously similar to the sentiment that preceded the automotive age, the age of air travel, and now the age of space. Remember, this is written in 1964. Right. One writer said, quote, 
but much of the natural beauty of this region has been destroyed recently by the building of the Delaware, Lackawanna, and Western Cutoff, running from Lake Hopatcong to the Delaware Water Gap. Modern enterprise lays her hands ruthlessly upon the beauties of nature and the sentiments of localities, caring for none of these things as long as the ends of commercial interests can be accomplished. End quote. Now we're back to Beck. I cannot help but wonder what the same writer would think of the great mound of stones, the old roadbed, virtually a wall cutting across the countryside like a giant mall's burrow, with a tunnel here and there one carriage wide on roads that must have a way through. For now it is a mountain surmounted by one surviving track, where once there were two and even three, if long, impressive sidings are to be counted. With once countless, once elegant stations, now dusty, dreary, boarded up, or pried open by vandals. We will visit some of these later, but I doubt if there will be any point in waiting for a passenger train. Hmm. All right, so what's happening here is Beck, you can see why Beck is such a great writer. He selects mm -hmm. great passages to share, but his own words are just as eloquent. Mm -hmm. In the end here, he's talking about no point in waiting for a passenger train, because even in 1964, when this book was published, the rail line was just a few years away from being abandoned. Right, right. So the Lackawanna cutoff, it was just under 30 miles of track. It was built, I think, in 19, from 1902 to 1911 or something in the early 1900s. And uh, it was part of the main line between Hoboken, New Jersey, and Buffalo, New York. It was considered the most scenic rail line in the state, which would explain the lamenting of it even being built in the first place through mm -hmm. such a beautiful area. And uh, passenger trains stopped running on it in 1970. Freight trains stopped in 1978. And in 1984, the tracks were removed. But when it was built, it was considered an engineering marvel, but it also played a part in naming the Great Meadows, which is why we included that passage. Right, right. Uh, this next passage explains that. In 1953, John, this is Earhart, said that Danville had become Great Meadows 76 years before. Quote, the railroad came through here and they wanted one station for both Vienna and Danville, he said. People up to Vienna wanted the station named for their town. So did the people at Danville. That was when the president of the Hudson and Lehigh stepped in and said, I'll name this station myself. He called it Great Meadows, and it's been Great Meadows ever since. Of course, inasmuch as the station is really here in Danville, it wasn't long before the whole town took the name, even the post office. Apparently, the malarial reputation that had oozed from the Great Meadows wasn't referred to, nor was the road called Shades of Death. There is evidence, however, that some older residents rarely connected the Badlands with what their doctor said, or if they did, they expressed agreement. John Cummins, pay attention to the name, told John Earhart that the name Shades of Death was derived from a series of murders there. All right, this is Cummins said this, quote, mm -hmm. There were three or four in my time, and two of them are still unsolved, end quote, said this amiable descendant of the Cummins town Cumminses, with no quibbling at all. Quote, One of them that was killed was a relative of mine, and we always suspected a neighbor who knew he had sold his crops and had $700 in cash on him, but we couldn't prove anything, end quote. But John persisted, wasn't the name Shades of Death much older than that? Oh, sure, John Cummins was quick to agree, but that was before my great-grandfather's time around here. Used to be, I've heard tell, there was a whole colony of squatters who lived up that way. They kept pretty much to themselves, they did. Used to be said they had a lot of women, and they used to fight a lot over the women. Every so often, somebody would be killed, but the law never could get anything out of the witnesses. But that was long before my time, end quote. What about wildcats? What about the story a lot of people have been killed by wildcats, and that that was where the name Shades of Death came from? Quote, never heard of any in the Shades of Death. 
But we had a plenty in Petersburg. John Cummins replied easily, folding up his forehead in a special way he had. Used to call it Cat Hollow, he added. And I remember Floyd Lineberry's reference to Cat Swamp as an earlier name for Caddington in Petersburg. Quote, last one we killed, I'd say, was maybe 40 years ago. They used to have his head in the big greenhouse in Hackettstown, end quote. John Earhart, persistent in his conclusion that the name Shades of Death had drifted down from pioneers who knew malaria well and came to expect it as a kind of seasonal plague connected in some way with the undrained bottom of an ancient lake, put this question. Quote, what do you know about the time they drained the Great Meadows, end quote. John Cummins was full of answers to that one and hesitated only an instant to begin with some of them. Quote, that was in my great-grandfather's time, he replied. One night, a bunch of men came to the house and asked my grandfather to sign a petition asking for the drainage work. Grandfather told them to leave their paper and he would sign it, probably, in the morning. That is, if he thought it was all right. He wanted to sleep on it, he said. But he wanted to do more than that. Next morning, early, Grandfather took my father in the rig and went to see Dr. Ephraim Sampson. Now, Dr. Sampson was the minister of the Presbyterian Church, but he farmed just like the rest of us. Dr. Sampson said, quote, I won't sign that paper, and I wouldn't want you to sign it. If you sign, they can assess you for the work. So Grandfather didn't sign, and he and my father and the dominee rode around to talk to those who hadn't signed yet to warn them about the assessment. Sure enough, when the work was done, the state tried to assess the cost against everybody they said was benefited. Took it to court, too, they did, and Dr. Sampson himself helped with the defense. The court ruled that everybody above the bridge had to pay whether they had signed the paper or not but only those below the bridge who had signed the paper had to pay. You see, we were below the bridge, and we didn't pay anything. He goes on, some of those who were assessed refused to pay, so the state took their land and sold it at auction. There was one fellow in particular I remember. He was a big Irishman named Paddy Welsh. He refused to pay, and they took his land. Some Ukrainians bought it, and they were the first Ukrainians around here. That's when... John Cummins broke off thoughtfully, and equally as thoughtfully, John Earhart, who knows his churches, allowed his gaze to rest on the appropriate and prophetic onion-like spire of the Eastern Orthodox Church down the road. Hmm. So, all right, so now, thanks to Beck, we know how the Great Meadows got named. Some guy from the railroad, and then Danville and Vienna both decided that they would, you know, they hmm. had to give in. Danville became Great Meadows, and Vienna is still Vienna to this day, uh, which originally was Cumminsville, until Jacob... Cummins said, let's rename it in the town that I came from. Also, uh, something happened to the Ukrainians there. We're guessing that particular story is lost to time. Mm -hmm. uh, the implication I got was there may have been revenge by Patty Welsh on the Ukrainians that bought oh, well, his land. Yeah, one guy I don't know. against a bunch of Ukrainians. I think they probably, you know, like a lot of communities, they fade and uh, disappear, dissipate into the surrounding areas. They move away. Kids, you know, don't want to do the same thing. They move to where the work is. Yeah, but why did he stop telling the story? Why did he stop in the middle of the story? Well, it could be uh, something untoward, something uh, just not remembered. Uh, yeah. We don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's more uh, fascinating ens ensuing mm -hmm. passages in here about all the attempts to drain the land. It was a failed engineering project over and over and over. And eventually they got it done. There's lots of info here. If it interests you, then definitely get a copy of Tales and Towns of Northern New Jersey by Henry Charlton Beck. He talks about how the Cummins family were actually Huguenots or Calvinist Protestants fleeing persecution before coming to the U.S. And they were likely taking their name from the city of Comines, C-O-M-I-N-E-S, on the Franco-Belgian border. But that's outside 
the scope of our show too. Mm. It's fun to drill down on that kind of stuff. So mm -hmm. what have we determined here? I, one thing that's really fascinating to me is when you look at the name Cummins and the fact that he said, hey, look, my relative was killed right. for $700 after selling his crops. And we never figured out who did it. We knew who did it, but we couldn't approve it. Right. Was that Bill Cummins? Because to me, I think there's a good chance that that links back to the Bill Cummins that is part of the lore of one of the murders on Shades of Death Road. Because Bill Cummins supposedly was killed and buried in a pile of muck by his house on Shades of Death Road. Right. And that's the same last name. Yeah. I'm sure, I know, and you and I both know this from doing the show. If the Cummins have been around there that long, there's a billion of them. So mm -hmm. that it's a little bit of a leap for us to say that. I am going to look into ancestry a little bit. I'd, I don't want to get, sometimes that takes me hours down a <laughs> path know. of, of yeah. tracing people. But I will, I, you know, this is only a couple generations. So maybe I can find Bill Cummins. I'm going to take mm. a look at that. There's a lot of stories about Shades of Death Road and its neighbor, Ghost Lake, uh, murders, mm. bandits, hangings, Native American warfare, malaria. It's hard to say which of these tales inspired its name or maybe be responsible for ongoing paranormal activity there. Perhaps all of it is. Whatever the case, there have been numerous strange encounters in the area, and the locals have grown weary of the sightseers. The original street signs have been replaced by strong concrete and steel pillars because... They kept getting stolen. Well, isn't that a good uh, sign to have in your uh, your basement room uh, at your yeah, folks' well, that's place? A, I'm sure that's what a hundred people thought, and then they yeah. they put up signs that are harder to steal now. So right, right. It's just amazing though that that is the actual name of the road. But this yeah. has been my point all along. I think in this episode is that a lot of it's POV in that. We hear the word shade, we hear death, we hear road, often associated with tragedy, death, wandering ghosts, burnt prom dresses, Native American shamans standing by the side of the road. All these things add up to an element that makes up a lot of our folklore and our best ghost stories. And there's something about roads, there's something about indigenous peoples, there's something about water, there's something about murder lost Polaroids. It just, it's got a lot going for it when you just look at it as a incubator of American folklore or any folklore. You know, I was just watching something. Uh, uh, my wife was streaming some stuff the other day and I was watching this documentary about unusual cases, I think viruses specifically. Mm -hmm. And it was talking about the Hantavirus outbreak, which yeah, I, I remember, remember that. that. Oh yeah. And it was, it was pretty scary. People were mm -hmm. dying from it. Mm -hmm. Um, it started out with a very young uh, boy and girl on a reservation, I believe. Mm -hmm. Boy yeah. was very healthy. He had been like a basketball player and maybe his sister um, or girlfriend. I, unfortunately, I can't remember their names. Right, right. But when they got to the bottom of what was causing that, the root of what led Western medicine to figure out how to defeat the hantavirus came from medicine men on the reservation yeah. who had long said that when there was an abundance of mice and mm -hmm. they ran across your clothes to burn your clothes. And that led to what allowed Western medicine to figure out how to uh, deal with the outbreak. So, yeah, small so when rodents. you see a shaman or, or a medicine man <laughs> or anybody on the side of the road, yeah. it's, you know, you might want to pull over and get some advice. That's part of always <laughs> been my theory in a lot of this stuff that we cover. And again, I find it so ironic how people will give, uh, will give them some leeway let's say within cultural respect and others about the ideas that they've been passing down from generation to generation for tens of thousands of years. They don't say this out loud, but they think they're silly. 
Yeah. Look, I always remember this one line that is towards the front of the uh, SAS Survival Handbook written by John Wiseman that uh, talks about if you ever find yourself in some rough conditions that are unfamiliar, do as the locals do. They've been living in that for longer than you can remember, for generations, for tens of thousands of years, perhaps. They figured a lot of this out already. Yeah. Every story you talk about, I can't remember, uh, it wasn't Shackleton, but some expedition to the frozen lands up north, you know, they arrived with European wools and heavy coats and, uh, you know, kept you warm, you know, fairly well and uh, oil skins uh, and all that. But that's their outsider technology. And what they notice is like, well, when you start to do heavy work, you're lugging stuff, you're trying to build stuff in that weather, you start to sweat. And then the sweat gets cold and it freezes. And now you're colder than if you, uh, as if you had nothing almost. So That's right. they look to the local Inuit peoples and it's like, well, they, they wear a caribou skin, but no undershirts and pants that are, uh, I think that are caribou skins. And they learned that the caribou fur, I'm just remembering stuff I saw on TV, is hollow and air makes a very good insulator. So it's like, they figured it out already. They're fine. They have uh, their igloos that they uh, sleep in and the temperature is pretty regulated and you get used to the cooler temps. But to survive, they had to learn to do what the indigenous peoples have been doing all along. So how does that connect to Shades of Death and Ghost Lake and Jenny Jump? Well, people have been there for a very, very long time doing their people things, living, dying, killing each other, facing pandemics, a lot of death, a lot of birth, and all with the natural background and backdrop of nature and nature's viciousness of just being brutal, being icky, mucky, uh, flooded, having mosquitoes. It's hard enough just to survive. Perhaps it's like that sore spot on your skin that always seems to break out. It's a little weak spot. It's where the blisters always happen, or you get the cold sore, or this spot that was always bruised or scratched and it's always discolored. It's just beat up and it's worn and it's got a scar. And maybe that's what this area is because Shades of Death Road is clearly a place where people have had face-to-face -face encounters with the unknown. The question is, are those encounters what inspired the folklore surrounding it? Or does the folklore draw the dark side of history to come out and play? that's going to wrap up this episode we'll be back in two weeks with a new show join us on patreon to hear us on the much more candid astonishing junk drawer in the meantime we actually just did two in a row while we were off for the fourth of july and most of the time they are live on video for our patrons at patreon.com astonishing legends astonishing legends is edited by sarah voorhees wendell at vw sound and co-produced by tess feifel who is also head of research and the social media manager our technical producer is Ed Vicola, or as we call him, The Mechanic. Special thanks to our announcer, John Bolin. Hi. Hi, I'm Axel. I'm Emma Jameson. I'm Eva, and, and I, I give permission, permission to Astonishing Legends to use my voice however they see fit. Astonishing Legends. No implied promise. Galaxy-wide. No implied promise. Use my voice. No implied promise. Future compensation. compensation. 
Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane at foundermusic.com. All other music and sound design for the show is composed and created by Alan Caressia. Our logo was created by Tommy Beaver Design, and our animated graphics for social media and YouTube are done by Joshua Sloan at deadstreetproductions.com. Every episode going back to September of 2020 has a transcription available on its corresponding webpage at our website. Earlier transcriptions can be made available upon request to astonishingcontact at gmail.com. Astonishing Legends would not be possible without you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Instagram, Twitter, Discord, Facebook, and YouTube. You can also visit us at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content, including the Patreon-exclusive show, Astonishing Junk Drawer, which is available every week the main show is not. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. <laughs>